The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, offering support for your spiritual growth and addiction recovery. Here's Rev. Lonnie Vanderslice and Rev. Dan Beckett. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery on Unity Online Radio. We're glad you're with us today. I am Rev. Lonnie Vanderslice. And I'm Rev. Dan Beckett. And together, we discuss the ways that spirituality and recovery intertwine and work together to support your spiritual growth in your recovery journey. If you are listening live, you're welcome to join the discussion with your comments and questions. You can call us right now or anytime during the show at 816-251-3555. Again, that number is 816-251-3555, and we'd love to hear from you. And Facebook users, you can also message us anytime from our Facebook page, Spirit of Recovery. Just click the Send Message button right below the banner. And just as with phone calls, your anonymity is always respected. So today's show is titled, Time Takes Time and Work. You know, in the literature, it says a group of famous psychiatrists noted that addicts are often childish and grandiose which are both egocentric manifestations that cause untold misery to the afflicted. And this literature says that we're often childish, emotionally sensitive, and grandiose. Well, in today's show, we'll begin by sharing our own experiences of that kind of emotional immaturity early in sobriety. And then we'll move into the solution of persevering on a spiritual growth path. Then after the break, we'll share how persevering on the path brought us to a place of emotional sobriety. So, Lonnie, what do you uh, recall about that time um, that these famous psychiatrists are talking about? As much as I know I would like to deny that I was ever like that, I don't think I can. What, what's your, what was your experience? Well, I was insulted and offended whenever I read that. It was like, what? You know, I'm a responsible person. I'm in my late 30s. I've had, you know, big deal jobs. I know what I'm doing. What are you talking about? You know, childish, emotionally sensitive and grandiose. Well, the emotionally sensitive was all over that response, you know, being offended because it wasn't about me. You know, and so um, there was a process by which I had to come into acceptance and I had to have examples pointed out to me about where am I being grandiose? Where am I being sensitive? You know, where am I being childish? And and, you know, and it was essential that I had sponsorship and other people that were um, in the program longer than I that was able to to do that for me. When I think back about it, I uh, I think about the things that were driving that kind of Uh, perspective, I guess I would call it, because 
for me, the, those sorts of behaviors that, of course, I was unaware of at the beginning, and, and like you, um, I didn't really appreciate that description, although over time, and as we'll share about a little later, I began to gain some more clarity about that. But when I think about you know what was driving that in me, and most broadly, it was uh, you know living from a place of fear and generally being unaware of it. And we know that the recovery literature talks about a, a thousand forms of fear. And, and once again, when I first got in, I don't think I knew what those were. I would have said, no, I don't, I don't think I live in a way that's particularly fear-driven. Fear but after some time, I became more aware of that as well. So when I think about that kind of childish behavior or grand, and or grandiosity early on, I remember that it was all just a a manifestation or rather an expression of the fear that I carried that I didn't really know about. And of course, that's uh, probably one of the main reasons that I drank was to try and balance out or combat that fear in some way. Uh, in, in On a sobriety path, though, we learn new and healthier and better ways to do that. You know, when I reflect back, I can see that I had this, um, I will call it magical thinking, you know, which falls in the realm of childish thinking that, you know, when I was a child, my thinking was that if I just turned things over to somebody else, it would all be fine. And so part of my journey was I had to, I had been turning my life over to my sponsor, had been turning my life over to the program as in, please tell me what to do. I wasn't taking responsibility for my own decisions, for my own um, process of of uh, working the program, I was doing what somebody else, else told me to do. And I crashed pretty hard about three years in because it wasn't, it wasn't the program I needed for me. You know, I was, I was going down a checklist. Am I doing all this stuff? You know, and, and that, when I look back, is just like, I mean, when I was drinking, the thought was, well, there's nothing that $10 worth of alcohol isn't going to fix. That's how long ago that was. And so, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's the same kind of magical thinking. Well, I'll just do whatever my sponsor says and it'll be fine. One way I know that this showed up in me or one of the things that drove it, one of the specific fears was a fear of not having enough. Right. And I know that that's not um, exclusive to alcoholics or addicts. Uh, it's just that that is uh, maybe, maybe my solution to living with that fear was alcohol. Um, but I know that that's a very common experience for many, many people, if not most, I'm not sure, but certainly seems like it's prevalent. But so having a fear of not having enough um, would drive, um, you know, in my immature emotional ways, drive behaviors that showed up probably as uh, grandiosity or childishness or you know, maybe assertiveness, but not from an emotionally mature point of view. And so it kind of comes across as I, I'm not even sure if I have the words for it. But you know, it's like if a if a little kid is is being assertive in a sort of self-centered and fearful way, that sort of way. And what I was trying to do is combat this fear of not having enough. Um, I am really grateful for uh, for sobriety and for this these programs that we have in the path that we're on, because that was not a comfortable or fun way to be, you know, certainly not fun to be uh, responding to life out of fear, but also 
you know, it's sort of, it's embarrassing thinking back about some of the ways that I used to think, or maybe some of the things that I said or did, um, that were driven by fears like a fear of not having enough. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, one particular uh, incident and it was after I was in the program for a little while and I was, um, reminded again to read the book and I went off about how irrelevant this book was that was written in the 30s by a bunch of educated white men and how I needed to rewrite the book. You know, we needed to have this from a female perspective and it needed to have a broader base in it. And the language was antiquated and outdated. And, you know, I couldn't see past those things to get to what are the nuggets of spiritual truth with, held within the text. And that's just an example of the grandiosity. You know, I'm right. I think I'm right, and so I need to do this. Of course, I was laughed at. <laughs> <laughs> right, or or maybe by the ones that have been around a while, just sort of a smile and nod in that invitation to come on back. We're glad you're here. Please come back. Keep coming back, we say. Um, thinking more about the, the fears that drove my own um, emotionally immature behavior. One of them was I, I recognize now that my sense of self, you know, my my okayness with who I am in the world uh, was tied to feeling like I was effective in the world. You know, there's some link to to. Um, oh, I don't know. You know, feeling not powerless, perhaps. And the ways that that would show up in a, in an emotionally immature person, um, I think, are some of the manifestations again that those psychiatrists were talking about. If I if I in order to feel okay, I need to feel like I'm effective or powerful in the world. That could make me, um, you know, maybe selfish or assertive. You know, leaning toward a bullying even kind of way, which is just a very self-centered way of asserting oneself. And I think that I was square in the middle of it. Um, I didn't have that exact experience with the book, but you know what? I'm in the demographic of the author. So I was probably <laughs> like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense, of course. I mean, I was aware of of the um, of the the masculine language in it, just as I am in the Bible. And you know, when I teach Bible classes, that's one of the first things I say is, look, yes, you're going to have to hold your nose so we can wade through the patriarchy to get to what's important underneath it. So, yeah. And uh, so I didn't feel so much about rewriting the book, but I, I definitely was right about how things should be running. I, I knew that. I knew all the flaws with the way that the, the group conducted its business. And, and if they would just ask me, I would tell them the right way to do it. And they didn't even know how to pass the basket in the most efficient manner around the room. But I did. And, you know, all those kind of um, self-centered, grandiose, I know more than these people about stuff, feelings, right at the same time, like literally side by side with, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm totally screwed. I better shut up and listen. You know, it's just such a mishmash. It was not fun. No, it was not. And I'm I'm reminded by um, your comment about needing to feel effective in the world. You know, I had this this uh, severe uh, codependency, the sense of not enough love and you, I, you know, I need approval and all of that kind of thing, coupled with this fear that you, you were talking about. And so one of the ways that showed up for me is my hand was in the air anytime they asked for volunteers. 
you know, oh, I can do it. I can do it. You know, I'm capable. I'm smart. I'm able to do these things here. Pick me, pick me, you know, and that was um, another one of these. I had no sense of what about everybody else or sharing the load or, you know, how does this normally work or do I even know what I'm doing? It was, you know, my ego had me out front and center. And one of the instructions I was given by my sponsor was to sit on my hands. Mm. She said, I do not want to see your hand in the air when they ask for volunteers. Wow. So it sounds like she was seeing something in you that uh, that maybe you weren't. That Man, I, I've said this before, but I'm just always taken by uh, you clearly had some really good sponsorship up front. And that's that's wonderful to hear. I, I love knowing that it's out there in the world and that and that we're a part of that now. Um, so another way that I think this uh, grandiosity and childishness showed up in me was that my sense of okayness, again, my sense of self, who I was in the world, was tied to feeling like I was smart and capable. And what that showed up as, though, you know, when filtered through um, the kinds of fears and emotional immaturity that we're talking about, it shows up as a, a strong need to be right. You know, because if I don't know what's going on, then I'm lost. And so I need to know what's going on. And so I'm going to make it so I understand what's happening, whether I understand what's happening or not, you know, um, and so and without even knowing it. So I would be very quick to draw conclusions like, oh, here's what's happening here or, oh, I, I see what how that works. And, and, and so I had, I would draw a conclusion. This is what's going on. And you know what? A lot of the time uh, that was not correct. I was wrong about it, but I really didn't have a ability to see that. And if that were challenged, then I would become defensive, you know, in a, in a childish manner, you know, even if it was just internally, I, I'm not, I was not generally then uh, an outgoing or I was not the one to speak up first. I was not the one putting my hand in the air right away. I was the one sitting back. So a lot of this is going on just in my head, you know, in my inner world. You know, another thing that showed up for me was uh, what they call poor impulse control, just like with a child. You know, I haven't learned better yet. I can't hold myself back. And that showed up in my spending. You know, I had um, in, in early recovery, I had switched addictions, if you will, and I was using shopping therapy to keep me, you know, down the middle of the road here. And that, um, you know, inability and the biggest one was when I bought a car. You know, I I talked to my sponsor, I did the research, I built a spreadsheet, I was convinced intellectually I did not need a new car. The car I had was like about three years old, it was paid for, all of those kind of things. And despite all of that, I wanted a new car, so I went out and got a new car. You know, and it, it was, that's just one example of, of many that the impulse just, I couldn't withstand it. Uh, you know, I, I have to... Uh, identify with that. And I always remember the quote from Mark Twain, I'm going to live within my means this year if I have to borrow money to do it. But let us, um, now that we know about this challenge of childish grandiosity and these behaviors and fears, what is the solution? Well, in unity, we affirm that we all have within us certain spiritual powers or abilities, although we may not necessarily be aware of them. And we call these basic abilities the 12 powers. They're, they're just 12 capabilities that we can work with to proceed along our path of spiritual growth. 
And when we do, we experience progress toward what the recovery literature calls emotional sobriety. This process and progression is what we want to focus on today. But what does it mean to progress on a spiritual path? And how do I know if I'm doing that? What does it look like in real life, both externally from the outside, but especially internally? Dan, do you have some experience you'd like to share on that? I do. And and I think for me, especially in the beginning, it, it was um, external kinds of stuff. And the first thing that comes to mind is what, it, what does it look like? What does it mean? Or what does it look like to persevere on a spiritual growth path? It looks like me suiting up and showing up, you know, no matter what. And so that's kind of a, you know, drag your butt to the meeting unless you don't feel like going and then go to two instead of just one, um, you know, that's very much an external thing. That's not an, that's not an expression of an, any kind of internal emotional sobriety. That's an expression of, you know what, um, I really don't want to go back to the way that life was before. And so I'm just going to do what these people are saying. So let me make sure that at least I'm there. I don't have to like it. I don't have to say anything, you know, but let me show up and sit down and be a part of this. Um, and in that way, I am persevering on the path. Now, by persevering, and we'll continue to talk about this, other things showed up that were internal. But I know for me, at first, a lot of it was just, you know, the simple, uh, you know, recovery 101, blocking and tackling, as we say, just focus on the basics. And the most basic thing was just don't go to meetings, don't drink, and go to meetings, as I heard it said, and I found that to be effective in getting me kind of jump-started on the path. The phrase that I heard was, bring the body, the mind will follow, mm. you know, and that that uh, was my experience as well. But, you know, once I was sitting in those meetings, um, I had to, I really struggled with this concept that this malady centered in our mind. You know, that's what the literature said, and I, I cannot see this defective reasoning or thought process or pattern within my own mind at that point in time. And so I had this, this challenge with understanding that simply stopping was not enough. You know, if, I'm, if I did everything on the checklist, if I went, went to all these meetings, why am I not getting better yet? You know, and so how could I how could I move toward this emotional sobriety when I'm seemingly doing the work? I'm seemingly going through the things that we're going to be talking about here, some of the tools uh, for persevering. And and for me, the challenge was because I didn't think I had this uh, mental twist that we talk about in the literature. You know, um, as we share about this and as I, th I think back and remember, I, I know that the first step broadly, so this is uh, this definitely is on the internal slash spiritual uh, realm, is to raise awareness. And I know that by doing things like suiting up and showing up, you know, just sort of taking the physical actions without knowing, well, how is this going to help me and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, learning to listen, that's another one that comes to mind. So what, what, is, what does it mean to me to persevere on a spiritual growth path? Well, early on, it meant to listen. So not only do I suit up and show up, I sit down and I listen. I see now that what that was doing was creating the conditions for awareness in me to grow. Like as I listen to other people sharing their experience, what started off is, well, I'm not like that, and I'm, like, I'm not like these people or whatever – 
slowly turned into, wow, you know, that person just said something that I can totally identify with, even though, you know, they seem so different than me in many ways externally. So by showing up and by being willing to listen, which for me was easy, because like I said, I, I was not... I was not an outgoing person. I was not quick to open my mouth and share. I was very quick to just observe and listen and see what was going on. So fortunately, at least for me at that point, um, it, it was relatively natural for me just to listen. But by doing so, you know, by following the advice um, of, of those who have been down the path before me, I I was able to create the conditions where awareness could begin to grow in me. And that's always the beginning of any kind of spiritual shift is awareness. You know, and for me, that awareness did not just like happen like an event. Oh, now I know what's going on. You know, it, it's a process and it talks in the literature about it being an evolutionary or educational type of process. And so this awareness for me, I had to become aware of what's going on inside of me and how does that match my behavior or not or not match it. And the thing I'm thinking about is that there was a situation where I had this, um, I'll call it cognitive dissonance, you know, where a, a situation happens on the outside that triggers a cascade of thoughts and uh, emotions. And my emotions are way out of proportion to to the incident that triggered it. And I cannot see that. Um, I cannot help that. I'm still reacting out of all this drama and everything. And yet my brain's going, what? <laughs> That's not that big of a deal. What are you talking about? You know, why are you acting like that? And so for me, that awareness grew slowly that this is a, okay, this is maybe not the way that normal, healthy, happy human beings react to a situation like that. But I didn't know that going in and I had to discover that as I worked through these processes through I as I persevered in attending meetings and using the tools. Yes, awareness. I'm hearing, I mean, that's a, what a great example of how awareness grows because boom, there's something right in front of you that you say, Hey, wait, what's going on? That's awareness growing. And you just used the phrase, use the tools. And when I think about what does it mean to persevere on a spiritual growth path, it means that I use the tools, right? And one of them that we talk about often because it's so powerful and helpful, I found is the the how, the H-O-W, to be honest, open-minded, and willing. You know, just like suiting up and showing up, and just like listening, if I'm willing to use th those tools, that little miniature, it's sort of a miniature Swiss army knife of its own for life, but for those of us in recovery, it's particularly important, I think. Um, it, when I use those tools and say, you know, I come to a decision point and if somebody asks me a question um, and I'm and I'm now a little more aware because I have been showing up and suiting up and listening that I, I can I can choose to answer more honestly as as not as opposed to like lying about it, but as opposed to being evasive, you know, or not being forthcoming, not being willing to share of myself versus being honest and being willing to share about myself. You know, that's one way that honesty could show up. Open-mindedness is just by, you know, as I listen, instead of sort of passing a judgment on 
everything that's being said. Oh, that's stupid. Or I don't believe that. I don't believe that that happened or, Oh man, that's not like me at all. You know, I, I, I don't really fit in here cause I haven't done this or that thing. Um, you know, being open-minded just says to, um, you know, allow a different outcome there, which is just to listen and then stop at that point and let it be listening. So yes, using the tools is what it looks like to persevere tools like, being honest, open-minded, and willing. You know, when I think of open-mindedness, I think of the word maybe. You know, that was that was part of my educational um, unfolding of this open-mindedness was to allow the possibility that maybe, might be maybe I'm wrong, it might be maybe they're right, or maybe that'll work, or maybe there's a different interpretation. But that was helpful to me because it put the wedge in the door, you know, where I could start to, to see that. You know, another awareness that I had, uh, it took a while, but was that just, and I've alluded to this already, but just following the checklist was not enough. You know, I, I, I would hear about emotional sobriety and I knew I didn't have it because I was still wound around the axle about different things. And I didn't seem to have any control over my, my emotions or my reactions. And I would be asked questions like, well, have you gone to a meeting? Did you talk to your sponsor? Have you read the literature? Did you pray? Have you meditated? Did you reach out and help somebody else? Have you made a phone call? All of which are tools, and they're, they're on the list of basics. But what I learned was that doing those by rote or doing those because it's on the checklist did not make the internal changes that was necessary um, for me to grow. It, it meant I could comply. I was in compliance, not recovery at that point, at that stage. And, and so I didn't have that emotional sobriety that went along with actual work in the recovery piece. Well, fortunately for me, and I'm going to guess for us, it shows up after t- over time if we're willing to do it. And, and I'm struck by um, you focused on the tool of maybe, you know, we could write a book called The Power of Maybe. And even though that seems like, isn't that vague, you know, isn't that seem like counterproductive to, to being successful in the world or whatever? I think it's incredibly important and powerful. And one of my favorite expressions of that was sort of the Zen story, if you will, about the Chinese farmer, right? The Chinese farmer story is that um, the Chinese farmer has a son and his son fell and broke his leg and all the neighbors say, oh, isn't that terrible that that happened? And the farmer says, maybe. And then uh, the the government of official shows up to conscript conscript young men for the army and go fight in the war. But because the son had recently broken his leg, he couldn't go fight in the war. And all the neighbors say, isn't that wonderful that that your son uh, is not going to go fight in the war? And the farmer says, maybe. And then the horse runs away and they say it's terrible. And he says, maybe. Then the horse comes back leading like 10 other horses. Now you're rich. Isn't that great? Maybe. It's uh, that 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 idea that says, you know what, there's probably more going on here than I'm aware of. Let me just sit back and observe and see what happens. The power of maybe. It's a, I can see it's a New York Times bestseller. You and I can write it. There we go. Our <laughs> next project. Yeah. So let's uh, hold that thought because it's time for a short break. And when we come back, we'd love to hear from our callers as, as we continue the conversation. The phone number to dial is 816-251-3555. Please stay with us. 
all are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery with Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice and Reverend Dan Beckett. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. We're glad you're with us today. And if you're just joining us, my name is Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice, and I'm here with Reverend Dan Beckett. We'll resume our discussion in a moment, but first we want to let you know that the phone lines are open. So if you have a question or a comment to share, please give us a call at 816-251-3555. Again, that number is 816-251-3555. So prior to the break, we were discussing that kind of emotional immaturity that uh, we experienced early in sobriety, you know, the result of fears that showed up in us as childishness and grandiosity. We also talked about the solution of persevering on our spiritual growth path. And so now that we know about this challenge of childish and grandiose behavior and that the solution is progress through perseverance on a spiritual path, how exactly does this process bring us to a place of emotional sobriety? Well, you know, this how question, um, I, I don't know how. What I do know is that it works. I do know that practicing the principles, that um, engaging the tools, that continuing to, uh, in a disciplined manner for me, show up and do what I've been told works, seems to work. And it was not an overnight thing for me. Um, You know, persevering for me, first of all, meant don't give up, don't quit. It meant um, I don't feel like it today. Okay, well, guess what? I need to do it anyway, whatever the it was, one of the things on my checklist. And and I grew in many ways, you know, just first it would, it was, I don't, I had resistance. I don't want to. And then it was like, resignation. Okay, I guess I've got to. And then at some point it turned into, I get to, you know, it's, it's a privilege to at this point. And, and I don't know when or how that happened, but that's kind of how it unfolded for me. Yeah, that, what a wonderful description of that shift. And there's a lot of joy in that too. I mean, I can feel it as I hear you describe it. I, I agree that how, how does this work? I'm not exactly sure. I mean, we have a chapter called how it works and uh, th- that tells us kind of the steps to take. But I think of it as like um, if I wanted to g- uh, do some gardening, maybe I wanted to grow some flowers. I don't know how to grow a flower, right? I don't know anything about the biology. And even if I read about it, I still don't know. And I'm not really growing the flower, right? I- I- I'm not turning a crank that's making the cells divide or whatever it is that flowers do. But I do know how to follow the directions. And if the directions are, you know, get a plot of dirt and take all the rocks and the weeds out. Okay, I can do that. I know how to do that. You know, plant the seeds appropriately. Okay, I can do that. Water it on this schedule, et cetera. Pick the weeds if they show up. I can do all those things that support the the appearance of the flower. Even though I'm not growing the flower and I don't even know how to grow a flower, I can create the conditions for a flower to grow. And I think in, in for me in sobriety, that's how it's been too. You know, all those 
tools that we learn, whether it be suit up and show up or, or how to be honest and open-minded and willing or how to practice withholding judgment and be like the Chinese farmer saying maybe instead of having to draw a conclusion, you know, those are the things that I can do that are like uh, creating a plot, taking out the rocks, planting the seeds, watering and all of that. And then somehow, and, and to me, and I don't even need to know how it's not important to me to get sort of the mechanism of this. I ascribe that to a power greater than myself, right? Uh, to my higher power, as we say, or, or I use the word God. That that's the that's the production of the flower part of it. I'm just the, you know, I'm just the gardener showing up and and doing the steps. And so, how does persevering on the path bring you know growth and emotional sobriety? I don't know, but I know that doing it. Um, works. And so I just continue to show up and do it and, and, and enjoy the flowers, you know, as they appear. The promises could be the flowers, right? Right. I really like that phrase, caretaker of the conditions, you know, that, that that's what we're responsible for. And, and in that way, I'm remembering that one of the things I had to do was to consciously reduce the chaos in my life. I had to uh, the things that created chaos and drama within me, uh, I needed to find a way of uh, either eliminating or reducing in my life. And that looked like uh, moving perhaps uh, away from the television or the radio and not listening to that all the time, or it meant changing the type of music that I listened to. Or it might mean that I didn't spend as much time with certain friends that, you know, were um, the place that they were kept me all stirred up. You know, it wasn't about them, but it was about what do I need to do for me to to uh, create those conditions for emotional sobriety to show up. You know, I had to start learning how to quiet my own emotions, and that led me to feeling more comfortable in my own skin. I didn't have as much dissonance going on. That sounds like a, a people, places, and things kind of shift where with yes. those are the gardening steps is, is changing people, places, and things, knowing that knowing that then, or at least knowing that that will help support this, uh, you know, perhaps this mystery of, of that we call spiritual growth. I know one of the outcomes, so when I do the gardening steps, so to speak, that I experience a greater sense of connection to others, just in general. You know, and that, that began... Uh, simply as, um, you know, sort of a little a little flash of light, if you will, uh, at a meeting. You know, I, I suit up and show up, and I and I listen and and try and keep an open mind and be honest. And all of a sudden, someone says something, and I'm like, wow, that you know, that's that really touches on something that I feel like I knew that I didn't even know in in myself. And now I feel a kinship with the person who shared it. Um, and that's an example of this sort of growing sense of connection with other people. One one little piece at a time, one little shared common experience at a time. And so, you know, that's more of an outcome than, than a step, but I see that happening and it continues to happen. I mean, that again, like you shared earlier, it's not a one and done kind of thing. It's not like, oh, now, now I, now I'm connected with other people. I get to be done with it. It can, it, it continues to grow, and it, and it turns into community and just a whole new sense of, of self and how to be in the world and, you know, what it means to be uh, a, a healthy person, both, uh, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually, etc. 
you know, one of the concepts that was helpful for me was this, um, it has to do with the open-mindedness again, and it has to do with uh, resistance. You know, I was very resistant. I wanted to be convinced. I wanted to understand. I had to be told. And then I had to be in enough pain before I became willing. And, you know, one of the things that I, um, I learned was that I had to face my emotions. I had spent my whole drinking career and young adulthood running away or suppressing those emotions. And I could not attain any degree of emotional sobriety without walking through those. And so that meant I had to stop resisting them. That meant that I had to begin facing them and allowing them. So, you know, for me, part of the process from moving from uh, bottling everything up and then dropping resistance is to begin to allow, oh, I've got a feeling it's coming on. What do I do about this? You know, instead of evaluate the situation. Am I in a safe place? Is it okay for me to have this feeling right now? And then uh, go ahead and experience it without having to act on it. You know, those are all the little tiny steps in the process for me that would occur when I became open to the idea that emotions needed to be expressed in an appropriate manner in order for me to get rid of them. And, you know, so today, one of the things that, that happened for me is that emotions are not overwhelming to me. They were overwhelming in the beginning, but the emotions that I have today, while there are some that are bigger than others, they don't render me uh, incapable of meeting life like they used to. Yeah, the the steps along the way. Uh, again, I, I'm seeing uh, more clearly now how important that is, and I'm you know I'm thinking about another example of just you know doing the right thing or or following the steps you know like the gardening uh example and this example though is that um my son and i have been building a dune buggy in our garage for the last couple of years and and that thing runs and moves now you know it started off as a frame of metal and then a a, a big piece of flooring that we had to uh attach and and I know every single step that we did in some of those things, I actually do know how it works. I mean, I can see it. It's mechanical. You can see it happening. You push this pedal, it pulls this wire, and that pulls this lever, you know, way back. And, and there are other things I don't know. Like, I don't get all of the details of the internal functions of the engine. I mean, I know people that do, and if I needed to, I could. But the point is that each, you know, every little step that we took along the way, none of those things were a dune buggy, right? But the result of doing all those things, of putting one foot in front of the other, of showing up and, and suiting up, and like we're talking about being willing to connect and withholding judgment and listening to others and doing service work, all of those things, they build a buggy over time. They build emotional sobriety, um, even though uh, some of it might, make sense and some of it not make sense it's def it, you know it, it takes all every step is necessary and it takes time and it unfolds over time and then hopefully we can look back one day and say wow i'm really glad that i don't live the way that i used to i'm glad that i'm more connected with people that i don't always feel like i need to be right that i'm not argumentative or grandiose or or whatever but just you know the pieces and the parts, one step at a time. That's that's how this works. Ten miles into the woods, ten miles out of the woods, one step at a time. You know, you remind me of another piece of my journey and the little tiny steps along the way, and that was, you know, the emotional um, disruption that I would have when I felt that somebody was abandoning me. 
you know, the emotional abandonment and the clinginess and the have to be a part of and want to be the center of and all of those kinds of things. And and I can't couldn't see that at the time that that was anything but a normal response from me. I can look back today, though, like you were saying and go, oh, you know, I didn't understand that that wasn't about me at that point. They're doing whatever they needed to do. That was an indication of my self-centeredness at that point in time. And so, you know, I, and I'm back on the emotional thing here. You know, I learned to sit with discomfort. I would get triggered. Somebody would leave. I would feel like I was being abandoned. I would have to, instead of trying to fix it or run after them or change the outcome, I learned to sit with my emotions as part of this uh, learning to walk through them. And while they seemed overwhelming at first, they got to be less and less um, that way. And so, you know, there are times when, well, I had, I was pretty anxious whenever I first got here too. And so my anxiety decreased a lot. And a lot of this paralleled when I learned to be aware of my thoughts. You know, when I learned to be, what am I thinking? Oh, they left me. They don't love me. You know, they're never coming back again. When I could catch that train of thought going through my mind, then I could use other tools like our denials and affirmations in unity to deny the, the, the historical lies that my brain would tell me and to affirm the truth. And those are the things that helped me move down that path. I like that phrase, historical lies, right? It's almost part of a denial. You know, those, those old, those things that I have habits of saying to myself, those are not the truth of who I am. So we, we can challenge those historical lies. Um, I mentioned before, a gr you know, a greater sense of connection to others as an outcome of, of taking the various steps that we do on our recovery path. And for me, what that brings is a sense of community, which very quickly led me to, well, quickly meaning over the first several years, if that's quick, uh, brought me to a, a real sense of the power of the community. And, you know, that's one of my favorite things to talk about because it's one of the most profound changes that I've undergone, you know, gone from being very much a loner, like I don't want other people to know what's going on with me. I don't want anyone's help. It all feels like meddling. You know, it didn't feel helpful. It just felt like, get it, you know, I got this, get out of my business. I can do this by myself. Um, that shifted when I realized the tremendous power of the community and how that allowed me to um, develop a sense, or maybe this is undeveloping a fear uh, of, of feeling alone in the world. Because when I truly experience the belonging that happens in, uh, you know, for me, I'm, I'm thinking now of a uh, recovery home group. I sense the power of that group that's not dependent on any one person. You know, that's how it's different than other situations I've seen or like, you know, businesses or for-profit businesses or whatever. It's not dependent on any one person. Nobody owns it, right? It's really an expression of the consciousness of whoever is a part of it at that time. And being a part of that and realizing, wow, this is really reliable. And you know what? Even if this group, for some reason, failed to exist anymore, there are 10 others. You know, I can, it's, this cannot disappear, um, this particular expression of it might shift, but that's okay. That's part of it. And so seeing the power of the community allowed me to realize, you know what? I'm really not alone in the world. And so there was great healing in that. So, you know, persevering, just showing up long enough to, to become a part of what's going on and to see what's happening uh, brought that little piece of emotional sobriety. I'm not alone in the world. 
You know, one of the things that helped me along the way was uh, choosing a home group. You know, becoming affiliated with a group that um, I could get to know and that could get to know me and being interactive with them and participating in the activities because as a as an introvert and as a loner, that was not what I wanted to do. And it was easy to to hop between meetings and not let anybody get very deep and know what's going on with me. But that did not uh, help my my uh, spiritual growth at all, you know, because all I was doing was hiding out you know, maybe feeding my intellectual uh, interests, you know, with regard to, well, what does that piece of the book mean to you? That type of thing. But it didn't really let anybody um, help me, you know, because um, there was a concept I did. When I got there, I had no concept of God except the one that I brought from my childhood. And somebody suggested to me that perhaps God worked through people. And I'm going, well, that's a novel idea. And they said, well, just think about it. And I'm going to gloss over this. But they'd say, you know, look in the Bible. Every time God talked to somebody, talked to one person, and that person went and talked to the people. God works through people. I'm going, oh, okay. You know, so I started paying closer attention to the messages in in the groups that I was a part of, you know, because I thought, oh, well, maybe that's a message for me. Oh, and then I was struck by how the messages were the same no matter who the group of people were no matter what the names of the individuals were that made up the group on that particular day, the messages were consistent, you know, and then I began to build a little trust in this process. That's a, I love that everything about what you just shared, because it's such a, I just have to smile at how wonderful that experience is and that sort of learning what you're sharing there about learning and how, it's just for me, it was just such a welcome change to this sense of isolation that I was not aware of that was, co- you know, ba- it was central to the way that I lived to this idea that, you know, there, there's this thing. I don't even know what to call it, whether it's a higher power. Are we talking about God? Are we talking about the way God shows up in the group? Are we talking about the group? I don't know what it doesn't matter. But what I do know is that it, that it cannot be destroyed. It's utterly reliable. And, uh, you know, that's one reason I love the unity principles, because they very much are pointing at this very thing. Um, the, the, un- the approach that we use is, you know, filed under the heading God as principle. Um, but, but the meaning of that is that there's this unassailable truth that cannot be destroyed. That's always there when I look. And, you know, I, I've built a life on that. Um, and I just love hearing you describe the the process, the that particular suggestion. Was, well, well, maybe God works through people with, you know, shifted, can shift our um, awareness or shift my, you know, my curiosity. We say that, uh, you know, whatever I look for, I'm going to find. Well, if I think God shows up in people and I start looking for it, guess what? I'm going to find it every single time because it's it's utterly reliable. What a wonderful way to live for me compared to, to how it was before. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and that gave rise to the phrase God with skin on, you know, and, and so for many years I was in that same place where I didn't understand um, a connection with a higher power, and but I could understand how God could work through people, and I needed God with skin on. And so I would go to another meeting, I would make another phone call, I would show up one more time in the right place at the right time to be a part of this group that you're talking about. 
You know, and somewhere along the way, I began to uh, gain acceptance, acceptance for what my life really is, because just because I got clean and sober and just because I worked a fourth step and just because I was aware of what my character defects were and the ways that I acted out and the way I was emotionally immature or grandiose or any of those things didn't mean they went away. You know, they didn't necessarily go away just because now I know about them and I know that I have them. And they're, they're, you know, it's, it's in the step work, but it, it says, you know, that they're removed when, when our higher power or God or whomever deems it's time. And for me, I, I don't choose to believe that that happens from outside of me. I choose to believe that that happens from the work that I do within, you know, my being open to the, to the work. And part of the work for me was learning uh, about uh, prayer and meditation, you know, I referred earlier to prayer and meditation being a checkbox on my list. You know, am I doing that? I had to learn a more effective and deeper way of connecting to this thing that uh, was this power that is, as you were describing, unassailable and, you know, utterly reliable. I had to find some way of connecting with that because what I was doing wasn't working. And once I found that way, then I had this greater sense of peace and comfort and support in the world. You know, I was just thinking the same thing about how introspection, you know, the 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 ability to turn within and notice what's happening that that we would call, you know, meditation. That's what it is, really, at its core, kind of an an insight meditation. That kind of introspection brings awareness, and awareness always the first stage or step in in any kind of spiritual growth because awareness brings the possibility of choice it doesn't like you just said it doesn't bring an instant solution and it doesn't bring awareness doesn't bring healing it brings possibility right and and with possibility that is now present that did not used to be present um, i can make different choices and making different choices for me is a matter of unlearn unlearning some old ways of being and learning new ways of being. So one one instance at a time, I can practice making a different choice, but I can't do that if I'm not even aware um, that there's a, a different choice to be made. And so that awareness is kind of like the example I used with, with the buggy. When I push the lever, it pulls this end of the wire, which of course means that end of the wire also moves, and that pulls the lever, which makes the engine go. Um, when I am willing to turn within and notice what's going on, that brings awareness. And awareness always, you know, is there's another end of the wire, right? Awareness is hooked to the possibility of choice and in in choice comes change and growth. You know, one step at a time. Again, 10 miles into the woods, 10 miles out. It, it's not instant, but it what was not possible becomes possible. You know, I, I think about that. I made a lot of external choices to try, you know, changed people, places, and things to try to make a difference in my life. And it wasn't until I became aware of the internal choices that I was making. What is my choice of thought? You know, and what emotion does that lead to that I really began to have different um, different responses in the world, emotional responses. I'm thinking of acceptance again. And and that was, uh, you know, I had not planned on growing up and being alcoholic. I had not planned on getting through college and dead ending in a career. I had not planned on having cancer. I had not planned on all these twists and turns in my life. You know, that was not the way that I laid it out. 
and coming to acceptance of what is you know where am i today what's going on today what do i need to do today and and becoming able to um hold that position thought emotion whatever it is without uh resistance then you know helped immensely on this journey yeah it's that power of choice it's that moment of integrity i've heard it described thank you mm -hmm. for that but now let's shift gears and move into action we know that unity's fifth principle states it's not enough to know these truths we must live them that means we must each take action in order to grow and recover. So here's something you can do to move from that childish grandiosity that we all know uh, to emotional sobriety by persevering on your spiritual growth path. Think of a way that you might still be exhibiting some childish or grandiose behavior. Do you still have a strong need to be right? Do you still need to have things your way? Or maybe you even encounter conflicts with coworkers or loved ones around some of these things. And what's important here is just to choose one thing, something simple to focus on for today's exercise. Because you can take what we do here today into your life this week and return to it any time you choose in order to find peace. So let's use the example of needing to be right. Use a statement of power or what we refer to in unity as a denial to deny any power to the need to be right. You could say something like, fear of being wrong does not define me. Repeat it a few times in your head or say it aloud, but say it with conviction. Fear of being wrong does not define me. And follow that up immediately with a bold and positive affirmation of a new experience. You could say, I trust my higher power to guide me in all my ways. I let go and let God. And then take a few quiet moments to relax and take it easy. There's no need to struggle. Just give thanks for your new experience in the world and then move on with your day. Once again, fear of being wrong does not define me. I trust my higher power to guide me in all my ways. I let go and let God. So we've come to the end of our time together here today, and we hope that you found something that can help you on your recovery path. Thank you, Reverend Dan Beckett, for a discussion, and thank you to all the listeners. We um, this this podcast is available via Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and we bless you wherever you are on your recovery journey. And again, listeners, if you would like, you can connect with us on our Facebook page, Spirit of Recovery, and give us your thoughts and feedback. And we invite you to join us again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central. Until then, have a wonder-filled week. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth, and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also 
our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.